From Sin Media in Melbourne, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode, long-awaited next episode of Great Minds Don't Think Alike. My name is Christian Sitsuvis. It's been my pleasure to bring this to you. So sorry that this has taken so long to give to you, but we have been very busy. But thank you for waiting out and being loyal fans to us. We really appreciate it. So uh, for our final episode of the year, we have a little bit of a reflection, I suppose, on the um, ups and downs of how this year has gone so far in the world of neurodiversity. So you'll be hearing two documentary reviews from me. One will basically be of the, unfortunately, the worst autism and I suppose neurodiversity a large documentary that was ever produced throughout this year. That will be of the new girl in class from the Indian Film Festival of the year. Um, and after that, though, to lift your spirits, uh, you'll be hearing my reflection, my very personal reflections on Life Admated, the uh, film that's gotten quite a bit of critical and audience acclaim so far, um, and that's arguably the best autism documentary of the year. And interesting that the worst and the best uh, autism films in general, I would say, throughout this year, although I haven't seen The Accountant and I don't really want to, but uh, it seems that the two extremes have been documentaries, which is rather interesting. Usually that's fiction. Anyway, and to close off the year, um, I suppose we've got another episode, or an, another piece of uh, screen media, rather, which is actually season 11, episode 8 of South Park, Le Petit Tourette, uh, which is, of course, their episode about Tourette syndrome, uh, which I suppose has sort of all the negative stereotypes, but also sort of all of the um, oft-forgotten details and complexities of Tourette syndrome packed into that episode. Um, rather complex and, and rather uh, a sort of, I guess, social mixed bag as South Park sometimes is. Obviously offensive in some ways, uh, but also kind of says what needs to be said and also says what shouldn't be said, I suppose, in some ways. But given it's a satire, um, of course, that does change sort of... It, it can get away with things that, um, that serious sort of dramas or serious documentaries certainly can't get away with. And the New Girl in Class certainly doesn't get away with many, many of its failings. But anyway, you're about to hear all about that. Um, before you do, just reminding you that, that we have all of these wonderful social medias that are, and, uh, and medias in general that you can follow us on. Uh, so be sure to like our Facebook page for all of the keeping up to date with the neurodiversity news at large. And also remember that uh, if you want to send us any, if you want to be a part of the show, if you want to send us any feedback, um, any submissions uh, of um, written pieces or audio pieces of your own, uh, or if you'd like to get involved in any way, or, or just anything you want to say to us, um, our email address is gmdta.media at gmail.com. But enjoy the episode, and thank you so much for listening to us throughout the year. And of course, since it is the end of the year, I should sign off by saying all of us at Great Minds Don't Think Alike wish you happy holidays um, and a very happy new year. So thank you. Enjoy the final Great Minds Don't Think Alike episode of 2016. And what a year it's been. Gosh. <laughs> everyone, Nicola here. It has been a while since I did a segment for Great Minds Don't Think Alike, 
Apologies for my absence, as life has got me busy, along with me procrastinating. But enough on that. Today's segment is about South Park Season 11 episode, Le Pete Tourette. I am personally a huge fan of South Park, so there is a possibility my opinion on this episode and the show may be biased, but even then, I will still express however I can in a way. South Park is well known for making fun of almost everyone and everything, and this isn't the first time South Park has made fun of or has characters with disabilities in them. The four side characters who have shown up in the show time to time has been Jimmy and Timmy, who both have a disability, Jimmy having a little stutter issue and also has struggle walking, Timmy who is in a wheelchair and can only say his name, and there is also Nathan who is a minor character along with his friend Mimsy who probably only showed in the show probably once or twice. There was also a minor thing about Asperger's Syndrome in a season 16 episode, however it wasn't really that great in my own personal opinion. But that might be saved for another topic and will probably get me into talking about South Park in general. Or at least the two-parter involved with it. Other episodes just either related to people with disabilities in general, or episodes focusing on characters such as Jimmy and Timmy. This episode in particular makes fun of Tourette's Syndrome. The story starts out with Cartman being in a toy store and hears another child swearing randomly while looking at the toys. The mother explains to a staff member and everyone in the store that this child has Tourette's Syndrome. Eric Cartman, being the cruel evil prick he is, it gives him an idea to pretend to have the disorder by having the tics that make him say whatever he wants. Later near the end, this gets to him and takes over as it almost makes him say his secrets instead of saying the cruel things he wants to say, basically having no control of it despite him faking the disorder. At one point in the episode, Carl had to go to a children's meeting to learn about other kids of Tourette's. Due to the people believing Cartman actually has it, they think Carl didn't understand it. He meets the other children who actually do have the disorder, only to be forced to apologize to Cartman despite, well, he was obviously faking it. While people may be offended by Eric Cartman and why he did this, if you're a big watcher of the show like I am, you have to remember this is Cartman's nature. A cruel, evil, egotistical person who will stop at nothing to get his way of things, and it's probably the joke of his character. So people should look at Cartman's character with an open yet wary mind of his character, and not to take him seriously. Despite the dark and crude comedy and humour from South Park, especially with this episode in particular, the Tourette's Syndrome Association decided to release a statement saying that Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of the show, actually did a pretty well-researched job on the subject. Maybe not with Cartman, but in general with how they did it, especially by showing the other kids with Tourette's and uh, having the different tics and different ways of expressing, especially in the scene, as I said, where Kyle met the other kids. I personally believe while South Park may not be everyone's cup of tea, and I can agree it did show a somewhat accurate way of, of what having Tourette's is like, sure it may not be a perfect representation for everyone, but it can be for some, especially if there was a statement saying the episode was pretty well researched. I guess it shows sometimes comedy can help people learn and understand, even if it's in a messed up way. This is Nicola Howe, and you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike. Hope everyone has a good day.
To say that the New Girl in Class is the weakest offering of the Indian Film Festival would be something of an understatement. Amrita Dasgupta's documentary on the life of a nine-year-old autistic girl is certainly never boring, but for all of the wrong reasons. The story that Dasgupta wants to tell and the story that she has actually documented are so embarrassingly different that the end result approaches the so-bad-it's-good territory. It is so perfect a manual on how not to represent autism that it is, in its own way, highly informative. Roshni is the new girl in question. Her mother, Niraja, has fought hard to finally get her daughter into a mainstream school. However, she doesn't just want her daughter to get the same opportunities as her non-autistic classmates. She wants her to become them. She wants Roshni to stop flapping her hands, cycling through repetitive actions, and playing with her own saliva, although that last one is certainly justified. She wants her to play ball sports, to play with her toys appropriately, just like the other children do. She describes the feeling of grief that she and unfortunately many other parents feel upon receiving an autism diagnosis for their child. Her husband, Shubashish, talks about it being one of those things that you know happens to other families, about wondering why it had to happen to his family. <laughs> Listening to them both, you'd think that Roshni had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Shubashish says that it gets easier, that the reality eventually sinks in. Naraja says that she has accepted that autism will be with her daughter for life, that Roshni is not and never will be a typical child, and yet she is trying to make her as close to one as she can. She talks about wanting her daughter to become independent and socially connected, and yet there is never a moment at home or even at school where Roshni doesn't have her mother with her. When Roshni isn't at home or at school, she is attending applied behavioural analysis therapy, sessions that are designed to make her act like a non-autistic child, whatever the cost. Of course, it's easy to see where Roshni's parents are coming from. They want their daughter to be happy, healthy and successful, and autism, like many things, is excluded from the mainstream picture of happiness, health and success. Naraja rejoiced when Roshni was walking and talking sooner than the other children, but panics as soon as her little girl starts falling behind in the race. Autism might now be widely known, but it is still sparsely understood. It is something that Niraja had probably heard about but never given a second thought until Roshni was diagnosed. Now she is desperately playing catch-up. She is trying to do the right thing, she is researching like crazy, but the immense ocean of literature out there is overwhelming, even to those who've been learning about it all their life, simply because just about everyone seems to have something to say about autism. For Niraja, what floats to the surface is what speaks to what she has already been taught to want for her child. For her to be normal, but not average. Special, but not special. Autism research and services is a huge, lucrative business. There is naturally a lot of money to be made in telling parents that their neurodiverse child is broken and that you know how to fix them. Similarly, there is much acclaim to be won from making a documentary about a heroic mother on a quest to rescue her child from the disability of the weak. What is much harder to sell is acceptance, accessibility, and social and systemic change brought about by some long, hard self-reflection. We do hear at least one person politely challenge Niraj's quest. 
In the closest thing this film has to a climax, where Niraja finds out if her daughter has passed her first year at her new school, Roshni's wise school principal reminds her that every child learns at their own pace, and in their own way. Sadly, though, her tiny bit of screen time is too little, too late. We see interviews conducted with Roshni's beleaguered parents, her strict therapists, her bewildered classmates, and even her twin sister, Srishti, who knows about Roshni's diagnosis, but not one of them is taken with Roshni herself. This means that countless important questions are never answered or even addressed. What does Roshni want? What are her interests? What does she enjoy doing? What does she want to be when she grows up? What does she think of her classmates? What does she think of her new school? How does she feel about having her mum at school with her all day, every day? If her sister knows about her diagnosis, does Roshni also know? Did she overhear it? Did she figure it out? If she has, how does she feel about it? Why is it hard for her to focus on playing a ball game? Is it really because she has a short attention span, as her father thinks? Or does she just simply not like playing ball sports? Why does she like playing with her toys differently? What stories is she creating in her head? Why does she sometimes lash out at people? Is it because she feels overwhelmed, frustrated, threatened, scared? Does she know that Srishti discloses her diagnosis and life story to anyone who asks about her? Does she mind her doing that? Is Srishti accurate in her accounts of her sister's experiences and feelings? Are her parents' accounts accurate? As both a biography of Roshni and a documentary on autism, the new girl in class really shoots itself in the foot, not just by jumping the gun with its production and restricting itself to the first nine years of her life, but also, more significantly, by not giving Roshni or any other autistic person the space to be heard. Roshni is made the object, not the subject, of what is supposed to be her own documentary. Instead of hearing from actually autistic people about the realities of being on the spectrum, we are stuck listening to closed-minded, non-autistic people making uneducated guesses and getting just about everything wrong. Roger Ross Williams's latest feature documentary is about a 23-year-old autistic man who's obsessed with Disney movies, so, basically, me. If you just wind his age back two years, move him from America to Australia, and rotate his sexuality 180 degrees. In light of that, you'll have to forgive me since I can't exactly distance myself from what is pretty much my own biography. So, mostly, I was just overjoyed to see a real person that I can relate to standing on the screen in front of me. I feel like I've earned that now, given how much of my life I've been looking at that screen. Not only is he obsessed with something that is neither maths nor IT, but he is also not a little kid. He is a self-aware adult. And fortunately, Williams knows how to treat him as such. Unlike the subjects of most other autism documentaries, he is old enough to reflect on his own past and current experiences of friendship, love, and coming of age and he is actually given the space here to share his reflections. 
Owen Susskind, the man in question, has watched every single animated film that Disney has ever made and memorized every single line of dialogue. Most of these stories and characters have been a part of his life for as long as he can remember. They have a special place in his heart and mind that goes far beyond their nostalgic value. Why does he love Disney so much? This is probably the only question he never answers for us. Not that I blame him, though. I wouldn't really know where to start with that one myself. It's just such an integral part of my psyche, of my personality and identity, that it really would require me to step outside of myself to explain where that obsession came from and why it has endured. Owen's parents talk about the comforting predictability in watching these same movies over and over. Not only in that individually they never change, but also that there are certain things you can always expect from a Disney animation such as a happy ending. They also think it might be that the softness of the animation gels well with his sensory hypersensitivities, or the fact that the characters are, ironically, both very colourful and very black and white in their design. It's a pretty clinical and simplistic explanation, but it's not a bad start. What the film itself suggests, even if no one explicitly says it, is that these movies are a thrilling escape into a very different universe, a whole new world, if you like, filled with endless possibility. The life of an autistic kid in a non-autistic world can be painfully lonely. Of course, Owen himself describes better than anybody else here just how crushingly isolating it is. You want to make friends as much as anybody else does, but everyone you meet just dismisses you as the so-called weird kid. By the end of primary school, the word weird can start to feel like a hateful slur. Everything about you that is unique, Everything you love, everything you do, your entire identity is pushed aside and pigeonholed into this single, meaningless category that no child wants to be a part of. Both Owen and I eventually gave up trying to play with other children and would play with the Disney characters instead. You still have fun that way and enjoy being a child. They can actually feel like good substitutes for friends. Up to a certain point, they fill that gaping hole. Even when you leave the house, you can spend ages revisiting them in your mind. Owen still likes to recite some of their best lines to himself when he's out and about, I guess in the way that most other people might sing to themselves. It's also satisfying to make up your own stories about them in your head. It's the closest you can get to actually bringing them to life, to having real friends, and until you finally learn to accept yourself and start to be accepted by others, this is the closest you can come to being a hero. At about the age of 10, Owen had written and illustrated a 100-page story about all of the wise and quirky Disney sidekick characters, naming himself the Protector of the Sidekicks, who kept them safe from the monster terrorizing the forest that was their home. It's easy to see why Owen identifies so strongly with these funny or sage-like side characters, as someone with unusual mannerisms and very specific interests, if this was any other movie, he would most likely be a side character. He would be cast as the helping hand to the so-called relatable hero, put there to provide laughter when things got tense, wise words when things got rocky, and high fives when things turned out well for the hero. But his own aspirations, fears, goals, and longings for companionship would never be considered. You can tell a lot about a person by the characters they identify with the most, especially when they're not the ones you're supposed to feel represented by. 
In this production, Owen's story of the sidekick is brought to life in some dazzling animation sequences by the team of Mathieu Bétard, Olivier Lescaut, and Philippe Sonrier. I can easily imagine just how excited Owen must have been to get that rare opportunity of seeing his childhood fantasies on screen. Equally, the scenes showing the Disney club he started with his fellow neurodivergent friends are some of the most moving and satisfying moments in the film. I am happy to say that Owen has definitely not been made the sidekick in his own story. One of the many benefits of choosing an adult subject for an autism documentary is that you can show them taking their life into their own hands and making it better. Owen turns what used to be his sorry substitute for friends into a way to meet and connect with like-minded people. Real people who will always be there for him. It also turns out to be a way for him to meet Jonathan Freeman and Gilbert Gottfried, who pay the group a surprise visit and do a live reading of Jafar and Iago, their respective parts in Aladdin. Of course, the other important opportunity given by Williams' choice of subject is that of exploring romantic relationships. Owen's conversations with his girlfriend, Emily, who is also neurodivergent, sound unhealthily strained. In many ways, autistic people can be said to have their own language and their own way of communicating. This is why an autistic person who is asked to communicate the way non-autistic people do will sound a bit like someone who is speaking in a language that is not their native tongue. It is quite strange that Owen and Emily would feel the need to speak in a neurotypical way when it is just the two of them. But there is obviously a force of habit at play here. It is interesting that Life Animated focuses quite a lot on the movie Peter Pan, seeing as there is this tendency to view autistic people as children who never grow up, just like the Lost Boys. Certainly on the surface, people like Emily and Owen might sound and look like children, but it is hard to know whether that is just the way they naturally carry themselves or whether it is because they are usually spoken to as if they were children, which leads them to think that that is how other people like to be spoken to. In this manner, a lot of the medical and clinical studies of autism are very chicken and egg. The only trap of infantilization that this film really falls into is its suggestion that Owen basically doesn't know what sex is. Sex is another thing that can be especially complicated for autistic people, but unlike friendships at school, it is surprisingly easy, at least to a certain point, to convince yourself that it doesn't exist. After all, non-autistic people pretend that's true all the time when they talk to each other. His older brother and close mentor thinks that Owen actually doesn't understand it at all. Mostly because he could never have learned it from watching Disney, and because Owen's been very unresponsive any time he's brought it up. However, just because he doesn't like to talk about it with his brother, or on camera, which is totally fair enough of course, doesn't mean he knows nothing about it. Nevertheless, Williams does give Owen ample opportunity to speak for himself on camera, and also to express himself through his impressive illustrations, as well as, of course, his favourite Disney scenes. He rounds off the film with some footage of Owen opening an international autism conference, a powerful reflection of the social progress of the past several decades. I can certainly understand how strange it must have felt to be a 23-year-old who has fast-tracked their way to the big time thanks to their exotic brain. Unsurprisingly, Owen finds it hard to pen down everything he has to share into just one little speech, 
and asks his father, Ron, what he should say. Ron tells him that it is all up to him, that it's his story to tell, which is ironic considering this film is technically based on the book that he wrote about his son's life with autism. Yes, awkward. Anyway, even so, by the time he is able to stand up there and present himself as a proudly autistic adult, his family has finally realised that he is not a lost boy. He is a man who has found himself.